joining us online because of the inclement weather. Uh, before we <coughs> commence uh, public worship, I have a few announcements to make. Uh, firstly, uh, regarding uh, Cloverdale Free Presbyterian Church congregation's call to the Reverend Fitton, he has been enabled of the Lord to give a positive answer and to uh, accept the call, and that has been confirmed by uh, both North American and the Ulster Presbyteries. And so it is now a question for the U.S., or sorry, the North American Presbytery to uh, confirm a date for, uh, for uh, installation um, into uh, the congregation there. So more details will, when they're forthcoming, uh, will be made known from this pulpit. So we congratulate our brother uh, on the Lord's mercy towards you. May be pleased to, to give great blessing and grace in the weeks and years to come to the glory of his name. As you can see before you, we are uh, holding the Lord's uh, memorial feast this evening uh, towards the end of this service. Young Adults Fellowship is to take place this Friday at 7 p.m. here in the building. Um, there is uh, petitions on the back table of the, of the hall, um, and information as well on parental consent, Alberta, and that's regarding uh, certain laws that were brought in by the NDP, which are intended to morally and spiritually destroy the youth and children of this province. Um, and more details are to be found at the back. Everyone can sign, young and old. The, uh, there's no age limit, lower or upper. As long as you're a resident of Alberta, you may sign, and let me encourage you to do so. Um, some prayer requests that we have in the announcements. Brittany's trip to India and Pakistan um, with the Siloam um, Development Foundation. Um, we do remember her in prayer. And Lolly, who moved to BC last year, was it last year? Was it maybe even uh, the end of the year before? Um, her grandson, Joshua, is 19, is having major jaw surgery. So do remember him in, in your prayers, please. This coming Tuesday evening, we have our weekly Bible study and prayer meeting examining uh, Psalm 13. Friday, as I've already mentioned, is Young Adults Fellowship. Uh, Saturday morning, uh, sorry, Lord's Day morning at 10 a.m., we have the adult Bible class, which is taken by the Reverend Fitton for this month of March. And then the morning worship at 11 and evening worship at 6 p.m., preceded by the half-hour time of prayer. And all these announcements... Uh, one more announcement, of course, we don't have an organist or a pianist this evening, so we will be singing a cappella. Um, should I call my brother up for help? No, okay. Um, sorry. All these announcements are subject to the will of Almighty God. Our call to worship this evening is taken from Luke chapter 21 and verses 25 to 33. Luke 21, and reading verses 25 to 33. And may it please the Lord to draw us into a right worship of him, that we may worship him in spirit and in truth through his infallible word. Luke 21, and verse 25. And there shall be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars and upon the earth distress of nations with perplexity, 
the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them for fear and for looking after those things which are coming on the earth, for the powers of heaven shall be shaken. And then shall they see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And when these things begin to come to pass, then look up and lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh. And he spake to them a parable. Behold the fig tree and all the trees. When they now shoot forth, ye see and know of your own selves that summer is now nigh at hand. So likewise ye, when ye see these things come to pass, know ye that the kingdom of God is nigh at hand. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass away till all be fulfilled. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Amen. Please take up your songbooks to Psalm 23. Psalm 23 at the very back of the book. The Lord's my shepherd, I'll not want. He makes me to lie down in pastures green. He leadeth me the quiet waters by. We'll stand to sing Psalm 23.
Let us draw nigh together unto the Lord in prayer, please. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts, thou eternal and ever-blessed Jehovah, thou almighty God, thou who art to be feared and to be loved, to be obeyed and to be the desire of our hearts, to be our all in all. Thou who art our creator, our owner, and to thee we wend our prayer this evening and give thee thanks for this opportunity and this privilege of coming into thy house and into thy presence, confessing with thy word that thy mercies endure forever. Thy loving kindness, not kindnesses are rich and glorious, that thy love is sweet, that thy goodness reaches above the heavens, that we may call upon thee because of thy Son whom thou didst give, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And so, therefore, we stand on gospel ground and give thee thanks, O God, that we may approach thy holiness in prayer. We have many personal petitions to bring before thee, but, Lord, let not sin stand in the way of fellowship with thee this evening, and therefore forgive thou our many sins and our failings toward thee. Forgive, O God, where we have allowed the flesh to triumph over the born-again soul. Lord, the way we have obeyed our own desires, and as we thought uh, of this morning by the preaching of thy servant, have thought too lightly of thy word, of thy works, of thy names and attributes and titles, of thy worship, of all these matters connected with thee, even of thy servants, of all uh, these matters that bring thee glory. And we do pray as we prayed in the prayer time beforehand that we may receive from Thee, yes, forgiveness for our sins that we have committed. But we pray also for grace, grace for grace, Lord, that we would be changed. Having come unto Thee as sinners and having marred the image of God, but as born-again Christians, that the image of Christ be restored in us. O Lord, grant us help, we pray, in our walk with Thee. It be not this external religion, and yet the heart is far from Thee. The lips draw nigh, but the heart is far. O Lord, forgive us when this is true. And grant us, O Lord, that we may walk with Thee, that we follow hard after the Lord. 
We pray also for those that need thy touch and thy help, who have illness of body, mind, or spirit, that they would know thee drawing nigh unto them to strengthen and to comfort. And as we come to the Lord's table this evening, as we trust to have this time of our fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ, that thou would help us all, each and every one of us individually, to discern the body. Are we in the body? Are we outside of the body? Are we walking in accordance with the body, or are we in rebellion against it? Lord, we may please thee to give that help. And even now, wilt thou prepare our hearts that we may eat and drink worthily, that we may have fellowship, sweet fellowship with the Lord, that his word would do us good, that we would have that time with him, that we may understand that little bit more, that we may know the blessings of Christ upon us. And Lord, we pray for revival in our own lives and families and in this congregation. We pray, O oh Lord, for Calgary and the province and this nation. Lord, we pray for Thee to have mercy. Pour out Thy Spirit upon this land. Bring forth, Lord, we pray, revival, reformation. Lord, awaken the dead and bring glory to thy name. We do pray, Lord, for those who are abroad at the moment, that thy hand of protection will be upon them, that thou will grant them journeying mercies and bring them safe and sound uh, back home. Remember Lolly's grandson and his needs in the coming week and the operation that is to, to be performed upon him. Lord, strengthen and comfort him. I know nothing of his spiritual state. We pray, Lord, if he is outside of Christ, that this, this matter might be used of thee to still him and to cause him to reflect upon his end and upon his sin and upon his need for forgiveness of that sin. O oh Lord, uh, remember our brother also, whom thou hast enabled to give a, a yes to the call, thy call unto him, thy call made unto him through the congregation, and that call confirmed by two presbyteries. And Lord, we do pray, O oh Lord, that thou be pleased to grant him all that he needs. Lord, he is but a man, and there is no sufficiency in him but may he know all of his sufficiency to be of God. To the glory of Christ, we pray for fruit. We pray for unity. We pray, O Lord, for mercy. O Lord, hear thou our prayers. Prepare us, each and every one, in our respective states for the table. Those who are outside of Christ, may they see something of the communion feast. May they see something of that fellowship with God that they do not have. And may they be, may they understand something of the sacrifice that made this possible. And may they turn to Christ. We pray thee all of these things in the name of Jesus. 
Amen. Amen. Now time for your offerings to the Lord's work to be taken. And our brother, uh, Deacon Nimi, uh, will come forward, give a short word of, of prayer. Immediately after the offering, we'll sing hymn 232, hymn 232, according to thy gracious word. Deacon Nimi. I stand to sing hymn two hundred and thirty two, please. Ah.
Please open your copies of God's Word this evening to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. And we read the whole of this chapter together, please. Hebrews chapter 4, and Paul has been writing to the Hebrew Christians in chapter 3 regarding the history of uh, the people under Moses in the wilderness and how they had hardened their hearts uh, repeatedly. They were exhorted uh, not to harden their hearts even today as in the provocation then where they provoked God. And so he begins in chapter 4 and verse 1 with this exhortation. Chapter 4 of Hebrews and verse 1. Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left of us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. For we which have believed do enter into rest. As he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest. Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he spake in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise. And God did rest the seventh day from all his works. And in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest. Seeing therefore it remaineth that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief, again he limiteth a certain day, saying in David, that is in the Psalms, today after so long a time, as it is said, today if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. For if Jesus, that is Joshua, had given them rest by entering into the promised land, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day? 
there remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. For he that is entered into his rest, he also hath ceased from his own works, as God did from his. Let us labor therefore to enter into that rest, lest any man fail after the same example of unbelief. For the word of God is quick, living, and powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Amen. And may the Lord bless the public reading of his word to each and every one of us this evening. Let us briefly pray before we come to the preaching of the word of God. Almighty and merciful God, we give thee thanks that thy word has been spoken forth, read forth, and has entered our ears. We pray that thou wilt have mercy upon us and cause it to enter into our minds and into our hearts, yea, into our soul, as we've just read of the power, of the life-giving power of the Word of God as it is used by the Spirit to turn the dead into the living. And we pray, O oh Lord, that those who are outside of Christ may know the quickening power of the Word and the Spirit. And those who have entered into the kingdom may know that reviving and strengthening uh, work of the Spirit also. Lord, and that thy name will be glorified as we, we feed on Christ in his Word and shortly hereafter at the table. Lord, help us, we pray. We are not as clever and wise as we think, and we need much, much help as we approach thy holiness, as we approach the word of God. O oh Lord, that we would fear thy word, that we may love thee purely. We pray thee in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <coughs> the verses for the preaching of the Lord's word this evening are taken from verses 8 to 11 of chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 8 to 11. For if Jesus had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day? There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. For he that is entered into his rest, he also hath ceased from his own works, as God did from his. Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. 
Amen. We see here, and I mentioned it before we opened up the reading of the Scriptures, that in chapter 3, that Paul is exhorting them, exhorting them to enter into God's rest. And then we have, we have the, the warning uh, that is repeatedly uh, mentioned in verses, in chapters 3 and 4. And it comes across maybe a little bit strangely uh, when we take that literally, if they shall enter into my rest. When we come across that, it seems it's sort of like a very open idea that the Lord is exhorting them, if they shall enter into my rest. Well, it's a, it's a Hebrew expression it's, it's, it's meant in the sense that they will surely not enter into my rest if they disobey me. If they shall enter into my rest, yet it is a conditional expression, it is a warning, and that is what is meant by this. And, and they will not enter in because of unbelief. Many did not enter in, or yet they were exhorted repeatedly in the Old Testament, and that's what Paul is referring to in chapter 3, and he mentioned it in chapter 4. Hence that opening warning, let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into the rest of God, God's rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. Because for 40 years long, they were toiling. They were setting up camp. They were breaking camp. They were uh, moving and traveling many, many hundreds and thousands of kilometers, carrying, the, carrying the, the, the babies with them, helping the sick along with them for 40 years working and working, and yet uh, we know, if you know your, your, your history of the Scriptures, you know uh, Exodus, and, well, and we see also some of the history in Leviticus, certainly in Numbers and Deuteronomy, as we come to the end of those 40, 40 years, uh, how much struggle there was, uh, not so much struggle with their own unbelief, but God's struggle with their unbelief. And so we have this idea of... of of rest, of rest, resting in God and resting with God and, and rest and, and the idea of also peace, peace and rest. That doesn't mean you're going to sit uh, on, on a chair for the rest of your life and do nothing. No, but it's talking about a spiritual rest and in some degrees also a physical rest because we have the weekly Sabbath also and we'll look at that as we come across uh, that doctrine in the texts but to understand what it is to rest. No longer fighting against God, no longer fighting for your own righteousness, which is uh, as filthy rags before the Lord, but coming into peace and rest in God. Something that the world misses, something that the world longs for in this, in this world of, of stress and turmoil. And to be honest, it's, it's always been the case. We, we have sometimes have this idea uh, that, that the world used to be a peaceful and a quiet place, but there have, have been constant wars, constant invasions, constant uh, dominion and aggression. Uh, we think of the Old Testament, think of, no, think of the New Testament, think of a, of a pleasant little country lane and what happens? We say a man is overcome by brigands and robbers and left for dead and a good Samaritan comes along. So there we have it in the Holy Land, in the countryside, we think, shouldn't, shouldn't we just hear the birds singing and see, see the beautiful vineyards on the side and a, and a nice sandy road leading all the way up to Jerusalem? But no, 
There were wicked people there also. Where was the rest? No, since the fall of man, there have been wars and acts of cruelty. Yes, there are quiet rural communities where the pace of life is slower, where it appears very peaceful in many ways in comparison with a big city. It is quieter. Especially when we think of a big city that's busy, it's anonymous, it's stressful. Especially when the government doesn't lock it down, of course, and it just goes on its, its busy old way. But the world, even so, misses peace, does not have peace in the heart, doesn't have peace in the mind. And so there is, a, there is an emphasis on learning to relax and in the world in general to compensate for this stress. And so you'll have sport, you'll have sort of hobbies uh, to take your mind off things and in and of themselves these, are, these are, are good things. Sports, maybe even learning to meditate in a in a non-religious sense, listening to classical music, uh, all sorts of, in and of themselves, simple and sinless things, attempting to bring the body to rest, to bring the mind to rest, to, to calm the, the constant chatter of thoughts. We know also that in the world there are even religions that have been built upon this very idea of just trying to calm down the mind, the thoughts, the conscience and everything. Think of Buddhism and certain aspects of Hinduism. Of course, Buddhism grew out of Hinduism. Um, modern day cults like transcendental meditation and even what uh, Scientology attempts to do with its, its, uh, its pseudo-psychology. Again, this, this, this attempt to master the unrest which is found in every human soul. They even give drugs. They even see that there's restlessness in children, and it's not to actually then change their method of bringing up the children, uh, or to be, uh, give the child more attention instead of two parents working and the children just left uh, with babysitters or whatever. Or whatever the, op the solution might be, and I'm not saying it's always as easy as that, but pumping the children full of drugs just to make them restful. Well, they're not restful, they're just drugged. Again, the, the solutions of man to the unrest in the soul are insufficient because nothing that man does will touch the soul. You may be able to physically calm the heart down, again, as I said, with drugs or with techniques. You may learn to calm the mind down uh, consciously to, to, to quieten it down with, again, with techniques of breathing or whatever, just to, uh, to, 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 to stop that chatter, that constant chatter. But entering the soul and dealing with that unrest is difficult. If not, well, it's impossible. Because really it comes down to the conscience. The conscience of man. And people will try to deny the, the chatter of the conscience. They'll try to ignore the, the chatter of the conscience, the, the complaining of the conscience, and they will fill their lives. They will maybe fill their lives with work just to, just to not listen, or, or they may they fill their lives with acts of charity, hoping that their good deeds will outweigh their bad deeds. Others, as I mentioned, will try to overwork. Some will overdrink. Some will do all of these things just to stop that cry of the conscience but as we know 
peace of conscience is only achieved when we've made peace with God because the conscience is the active work of God even in the atheist sinner. It's at work. It's at work. And that is only possible that we'll have that peace through God when we have come to God through the Son of God who is called the Prince of Peace. He is the only one that can bring that peace to our minds, to our hearts, to our desires, and to our conscience. And as we come to the table this evening, it is that very much in mind as we come to sit at the table, figuratively speaking, in the pew, uh, that we will consider with the Lord's gracious help this evening is resting in Christ at the table. That's the title of the sermon this evening, Resting in Christ at the Table. And as we open up verse 8 of chapter 4 of Hebrews, we see firstly the earthly rest. The earthly rest. The earthly rest. And, and that first rest that we see is mentioned to us, well, is God's rest from creation. But the, the earthly rest that we see there in verse 8, for if God, for if Jesus had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day so before we get to that exact point let's look at verse 4 it says there in verse 4 God's rest from creation for he spake in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise and God did rest the seventh day from all his works it's referring back of course to Genesis 1 and 2 to the the creation account and then uh, specifically the beginning of chapter 2 uh, that the Lord rested on the seventh day he'd worked from from the first day uh, to the sixth day and created all things, set all things in motion. And then he rested, he stopped working. That's where our understanding of, of what rest is. Rest is a, is a stopping of work and that's what he did. Did the Lord uh, cease maintaining and sustaining creation? No. He continued with that. But the actual work of cre what we call in, in, in theology the creatio ex nihilo, that is the creation out of nothing, was ceased. And he rested. He ceased his work on the seventh day, what we've, when we've looked at before, the Sabbath of creation, the, the creation Sabbath, the, the Old Testament Sabbath. And that was a day that God set apart. He set it apart. He, literally, that's what the word means when he says he sanctified it. He set it apart from other days. And it was a day that God blessed. He put his special uh, blessing, almost his signature upon that day, that it would be a blessing to all those that would rest in fellowship with him on that day. And that's what's told to us in Genesis 2, verses 2 to 3. It says, And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because that in it he had rested from all his work which God created and made. God then said that the work is finished, and as it were, he enjoys creation. Yes. He saw that all was very good. Yes. But he had fellowship with Adam and Eve. He had fellowship with mankind, because that was the point of both the creation and of the Sabbath, that he would have time 
with Adam and Eve, that they would have time with him. And of course, as they would have children, as mankind would continue. And here we are now in the realms of theory because of there was a fall and it was a swift fall, I believe. But if there was no fall, then, then, then that would continue. That sweet uh, fellowship one day in seven, that, that mankind would rest from their labors of, 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 of toiling in the garden of gardening, of farming, and maybe even looking after uh, the livestock in some degree, but of course there would be no death. And that they would continue, and then they would cease their work and have fellowship with God on that day of rest. They would rest with God, and they would rest in God. Now that rest is is mentioned in in Hebrews chapter 4 to help us understand something of the resting from working. There's also that mention there in, in, uh, in verse 8 of God's people's rest from their wandering. And that brings us back to the, to the wilderness, of course. We read that in verse 8. For if Jesus had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day? Now, if you first read this, then you might, have a, you might be startled when you read this and you think of Jesus of Nazareth, but this is not Jesus of Nazareth. This is Jesus, the son of Nun. You said, I've never heard of Jesus, the son of Nun. Well, you have, but you're not reading his, you're not used to seeing his name as a Greek name. Jesus is merely Greek for Joshua. If you read Numbers 13 and verse 16, and I'll read it for you, we'll read this. These are the names of the men which Moses sent to spy out the land, and Moses called Oshea, the son of Nun, he renamed him, Jehoshua. So, huh? I thought his name was Joshua. Jehoshua is the long version of Joshua. There's another short version of, Josh, of Jehoshua, and that's Jeshua. So though Jeshua or Joshua... We can have both of those terms, just to make it understanding. But the Greeks couldn't say sh. They couldn't say the word, the, the sound sh. So they didn't say jeshua, they said jesua. But then they had the problem in the Greek language, if, if you had an a at the end of your name, that was like for a girl. It's like the Greeks, wouldn't you say, well, what's your name? My name's Paula. No, no, that wouldn't sound right. It doesn't sound right in English either. So like the Romans would say Paulus for a man and Paula for a woman. And again, it was the same with the Greeks. The Greeks couldn't lead it as Jesua. They had to put an S at the end to make it into the man's name that it was. And so from all that long, we get the name Jesus. Jesus. For if Jesus, that is Joshua the son of Nun, had given them rest, that is when he'd brought them into the promised land, remember it was his work once Moses had been taken, then there would not afterwards have been spoken of another day. So yes, the people of God were brought into, that, into the promised land, and yet there was still a day, a day that they needed to be saved, a day when, the, when, when shall we say, when the real Jesus would come. There's, there's so much layered in chapters 3 and 4 that if you are familiar with these chapters, you'll know in some ways certain things are just a skimming over the surface to get to the point of what we're looking at in verses 8 to 11. So we're understanding something of the earthly rest that Paul is pointing to, 
uh, that rest, at the creation, the rest of the people entering into the rest in Canaan. But we move swiftly on uh, to verse 9 where he speaks of an eternal rest. He says, There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. And who are the people of God? Well, verse 3 helps us to understand that those of the people of God, the people of God is a broad term, to all of Israel, all of the people of God. And as we understand uh, from Romans, uh, that we as the Gentiles, where some of the, of the Jews were, were, were torn off Jesus, torn out of the stock of the root, that we have been grafted in, that we have become external with an external covenant relationship with Jesus, we have entered in, and that's what we see in the world, in history. We understand it from what, Roman, what Paul was writing to the Romans. And again, we understand that there were many who were in Israel, many who still are in uh, spiritual Israel. Not that we're believing that, w that the Gentiles have replaced them, but we haven't replaced them. And that we're not running along parallel with them, like the dispensationalists would say, that, the, that God has two people, two peoples. No, we have been grafted in. We have been added to. And so there we are. So that's the application to us as well, though he's speaking of, of, the, of, the, of the Old Testament church. There are many in that church. There are many who are the people of God. And yet he says in verse 3, For we which have believed do enter into his rest. So Paul, the Jew, speaking to, to Hebrew, to Jews, Jewish Christians, explaining to them that the difference is you can have all these people in the people of God, and yet they are to individually believe on the Lord, all of them. And so then before we understand what, what is said in, in, in the Scriptures, that not all Israel was Israel. Not all of physical Israel was spiritual Israel. And that is, of course, that continues in the church, in the New Testament church, established by Jews. Established by Christ, of course, but through the work of the Jewish apostles who become Christians. So there's, there's no separation. The first thousands of, of Christians in the New Testament church were all Jews. And then gradually, more and more Gentiles are added. So we understand that the people of God, that by faith in the gospel, he mentions that there, speaks of promises, he speaks of the gospel. It says they enter into the rest of God. They enter into having rest with God, having peace with God. And it's faith. It's faith. So it's only those that enter into, enter into that rest with God by faith in God. And, and that rest that we see there is really a foretaste of the eternal rest to be had with God. See, so the rest that was given to the people there was insufficient. Then there would not have afterwards have been spoken of another day. There is another day, there is an eternal day, an eternal rest which is yet to come to the people of God. Which brings us then to the Sabbath rest, thirdly. 
We've seen the earthly rest, the eternal rest, and the Sabbath rest in verse 9. There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. And so not only does that rest indicate to the people of God the eternal resting with God and in God forever and ever, but it actually and it literally indicates, indicates an abiding rest for the people of God. There remaineth, we could, we, we could translate that word, there abideth, there continueth, therefore a rest to the people of God as a foretaste. Of the many times that we will read the word rest in chapter 4 and even in chapter 3, they're all the same word except in verse 9. They're all the same word. They're all derived from the same root word that means ceasing from work. And the English word pause, to take a pause or to press pause, is, is actually that Greek word, the root word that we get from Greek and it's not meant to be as a pause as we would think as just a temporary stop and then start again, although that would be correct in what we're looking at in the weekly Sabbath. But the eternal rest, of course, is, is an eternal rest. The pause will continue. Pausing from what? Well, we'll look at that in a minute. But in verse 9, as you read the Greek, it's a completely different word. Startlingly different. So we have that word that we're reading all the time. And of course, rest is a good translation of it. But the word, word itself is a word called sabbatismos. Sabbatismos. And you hear the word Sabbath in there. Sabbatismos. And, and that means the keeping of a weekly Sabbath rest. So it was actually in the Greek language. It was in the Greek language because the Greeks had had contact with the Jews so often and the Jews would trade and the Jews would come and, uh, and dwell in various Greek cities. And so there was, and the Greeks would, uh, and the Jews, what should I say, the Greeks would notice that the Jews were resting on the, uh, every seven days. They didn't have the same weekly system uh, as, as we do now. We've inherited that uh, from the Jews. But they noticed that. And so this idea of, of a sabbatismos, of stopping work every seven days, of resting with your family, of, of, of having public worship and private worship, family worship, but just, just stopping completely and then carrying on working for the next six days. It was, it was a foreign idea to the, to the Greeks. And they observed this, and, and they took that word, that word Shabbat, and they thought the idea of keeping Shabbat, and they came up with their own version of the word, Sabbatismos which means, as I've said, there remains or there continues a Sabbath-keeping to the people of God. Why is there a continuance of a Sabbath-keeping to the people of God? Well, firstly, because God commanded it. God commanded it in Exodus 20. We know that. And Exodus 20 gives the reason for the Sabbath day based upon creation. But if we read the words from Deuteronomy 5... We see that the, 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 the reason given for the command, and the Lord doesn't have to give any reason, but the Lord is gracious and merciful. And he gives reasons that we would understand so that we would keep. It's interesting of all the commandments. The commandment um, for pure worship of the second commandment, not to have any, any idols, no statues, no graven images, 
The Lord spends time to open up that command that we would be exhorted and encouraged to keep it. And he does that the same with the fourth commandment on the Sabbath. And he does that with the fifth commandment. The first commandment with a promise, as Paul says. Spends time to open. And the rest just gives us a, as, a, as, a, as a clear command because it should be obvious. It's not obvious that we who are idolatrous by nature, how we should worship God. It's also we who are selfish and would have every day of the week for our own pleasure and use and work and have nothing to do with God. It's not obvious, and so the Lord spends time to declare that. It's also not obvious that we who rebelled against our heavenly Father and as children rebel against our uh, earthly parents, it's not obvious that we are to honor father and mother. It's easy to maybe uh, honor your father. Maybe he's a little bit more strict. But you're to honor both parents, whatever it might be. And then we have that first promise, honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. And as it mentions in Deuteronomy, that not only is that long life, but it is a blessed life. But coming back to Deuteronomy 5 then, when it comes to the Sabbath day to sanctify it, a different reason, a different encouragement and exhortation is given for the keeping of the weekly Sabbath. And this points towards the New Testament. Because the reason given is redemption. Because you've been redeemed. The people were redeemed, but it, it speaks of the Redeemer of Christ redeeming His church and the work that He has yet to have done and yet still applied to the believer in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 5, verses 12 to 15. Keep the Sabbath day to sanctify it, as the Lord thy God hath commanded thee. Six days shalt thou shalt labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, Thou, nor thy son, nor thy daughter, nor thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thine ox, nor thine ass, nor any of thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates, that thy manservant and thy maidservant may rest as well as thou. And remember that thou wast a servant in the land of Egypt, and that the Lord thy God brought thee out thence through a mighty hand and by a stretched out arm. Therefore, the Lord thy God commanded thee to keep the Sabbath day. So it's shifted. So the attention is not on creation. In six days the Lord created the heavens and earth and he rested on the seventh day. But now it's very clear it's about redemption. So it's commanded to the people of God. Secondly, because the weekly Sabbath is a sign of being a member of the people of God. It's a sign. You could even say it's a public witness. And we read that very early on in, in, in the Bible, in, in Exodus Exodus 31 and verse 16. And it says, Wherefore the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations for a perpetual covenant, a non-stop covenant between them and God. In fact, it is a covenantal sign. Uh, we can even say that the Sabbath is the covenantal Sabbath, and it is. But later on, many hundreds of years later, Ezekiel taught the same doctrine. You might say, well that, well, that was in the time of Moses. That was before they'd established the kingdom. Okay, what about, what about the kingdom? And the kingdoms, uh, well, one kingdom's been sent into captivity. I believe at the time of Ezekiel, uh, Judah was not yet in captivity, but it might be just about that time. 
No, they were taken into captivity. So early on in the captivity, the prophet Ezekiel taught the same doctrine. And he was speaking to them in captivity. It says in Ezekiel 20 and verse 12, Moreover, also I gave them my Sabbaths to be a sign between me and them that they might know that I am the Lord that sanctify them. So a sign, a personal sign between the people and God, yeah, between each believer and God, yes, that I am the Lord that sanctify them. To know that a seventh of their time belongs to God and they are to give it. He, he gives them seven days, and he says here, give me this one day back to spend time with me for your soul's sake. Thirdly, because the weekly Sabbath is a foretaste, and this is really the emphasis, I would say, in chapter 4, is a foretaste of the, of the future existence of the people of God, with God, and it is a present practicing of resting in and with God. If you're coming to the Lord's house, as you're waking up on the Lord's day, if you, when you wake up, you realize, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to do the things that I want to do, as it were, outside of God. I, I'm going to lay those things to one side. They can wait for a day. Or I should have done them yesterday. And I'm going to endeavor uh, to rest with God. Not in a legalistic way. That's not resting in God, because we'll see. That's got nothing to do with resting. But I will rest in God. I'll put these things to one side. I will spend time with the Lord. I'll go to the house of the Lord. And more than once, as I'm able. And we'll have time with the Lord. And we'll have time as a family with the Lord. And recognize it as the Lord's day. But what does the Lord want to do on that day? He wants to spend it with us. It's not astounding that the eternal God desires one day in our little, little world one day in seven, that we would draw nigh unto him. And put all the other things, all the, all the busyness of life. And Christ himself taught the keeping of the Sabbath. But we notice with the verse that I'm going to uh, give to us now, he laid the emphasis on the blessing of the day. That doesn't mean he therefore didn't understand the sanctifying of the day, setting the day apart. It's because the day has been set apart that we come into the blessing of the day. Uh, and he describes how the Sabbath was made for our physical good and for our spiritual good. Mark 2 and verse 27 and 28, and this is the Lord Jesus speaking. And he said unto them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. He doesn't say the Son of Man was Lord over the Sabbath. He's not referring to the Old Testament. He is. He ever is the Lord of the Sabbath. And how do we understand it when he says he is the Lord of the Sabbath? Well, Christ arose on the first day of the week. He arose on the first day of the week. He was dead, as it were, deadening the Old Testament Sabbath, and he rose on the first day of the week. He visited his disciples on the first days of the week, the first day of the week repeatedly. And when he has ascended up into heaven, it wasn't the only day. He also visited them on a Thursday before he ascended up into heaven. And then ten days later, also a Lord's Day, he pours out his Spirit upon his church in Pentecost. And the apostolic church kept to this Christian Sabbath on the first day of the week. We read that in Acts 20 and verse 7. 
And it says, Upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow. And he continued his speech until midnight. I hope nobody complained about the length of his sermons. Paul kept the Christian Sabbath by not traveling on the Lord's Day. He went to church, he preached at church, but he delayed his traveling until the next day. Also, the church was to collect the offerings as part of their Lord's Day devotion was to gather the offerings for the poor in the church, 1 Corinthians 16, 2. Uh, Paul says this, he writes this, upon the first day of the week, let every one of you, that's a command, let every one of you lay by him in store as God hath prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. John the Apostle kept to the fourth commandment, we read. In Revelation 1 and verse 10, he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Now, that's a good description of church attendance. I was in the Spirit. Were there other Christians that he could gather with? We don't know where he was in Patmos. But it seems that Patmos was like an, a sort of an open prison system. Not too open. They couldn't escape. Plenty of sea around them. Uh, but there were many mines in there. No doubt he was too old to go down the mines, but maybe he could do work uh, on the surface. Maybe, uh, maybe he didn't have to do any work, uh, seeing, of his, uh, seeing, uh, seeing as he was an old man. But he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. And that's how the, the revelation, the whole vision is opened up before him. Being in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And the Lord's day is what? It's the day of the Lord. The Lord is the Lord of the Sabbath. It's, it's his day. And as the early church understood, it's the day of his resurrection. The Sabbath of redemption. So the Sabbath of redemption is now on the first day of seven. We have the Sabbath of creation, the last day of seven. And that's what he's speaking of. There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. And that's two levels in there. So the church still has a weekly Sabbath, yes, but there is also an eternal Sabbath for the people of God. Those two things we see here in verse 9. But again, it's only to those that believe. You may be part, publicly part of the church, but if you yourself do not personally believe, there is no eternal rest in and with Christ. And that brings us to the truth of verse 10 then. So we've seen the earthly rest, the eternal rest, the Sabbath rest, and now we come into the gospel rest of verse 10. Verse 10, for he that is entered into his rest, he also hath ceased from his own works, as God did from his. Now the reason why I say I'm pointing his, because that is, it's, it's not very clear in the English so it's for he that is entered into his rest is, is the idea, of, you might think, well, he that has entered into his own rest, as in he stopped from his works. And so that's, that's, that's not very clear. Or is he talking about he that has entered into God's rest? Well, unfortunately, the Greek is just as, 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 as unclear, um, so there's no help there. But we have the whole context of the chapter 4, which makes it very clear it's entering into God's rest. Entering into the rest that God has prepared, the peace, the rest, the bliss that he has 
for his people. Therefore, for he that is entered into God's rest, he, he that is entered, also hath ceased from his own works, as God did from his. And so it is the gospel that commands us uh, to cease from sin, to cease from all sinful words, works, thoughts, and desires, and that we're to turn away from them. The idea of ceasing from them is the idea of, of repenting of them, turning away from them. Radically turn away from them. And besides sin, what is connected with sin is the idea of ceasing from self-righteous works. Self-righteous works of, of, of charity, of, of doing good works, or, or self-righteous religion. And we are to enter into the peace with God through Christ, no longer through our own efforts of keeping this rule, of keeping being strict about this, of making sure we do this and do that, which changes all the time anyway. We are not consistent in our own self-righteous laws, in our legalism. But we're too blind to our legalism to notice it but we're not doing it through Christ. We're, on the contrary, you are to lay hold of Christ's work. You're to repent of your own work, of your own religion, of your own strictness, of your own charity, of your own good deeds, and you're to lay a hold on Christ's work, of Christ's charity, of Christ's good works. and doing away with every attempt to work your own salvation. It's in there, you know, brethren and sisters. It's in the heart of every true believer even. But everyone who is born of a woman has that in their hearts. What can I do? What can I do to, 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 to affect my my. my my salvation, and some might go so far as you, you are to do this, and you're to do all, these, all of these works uh, to uh, earn it in some way, and there are some that believe that you can do that. There are some that, that are a little bit more honest, but still in error, and say, well, no, God has to do this much, and you have to do that much. Again, that's not biblical either. The Bible is you can do nothing, but Christ has done everything, and therefore, what do we need? Whom do we need? Christ. He has done it all. And we must have him. And not a little bit of me and most of Christ. Nothing of me, that's in the repentance unto true faith. But all of Christ. Repenting of all my sin, including that tendency that's within us. To have self-righteous works that must add to our salvation. It doesn't. Imagine you have a pallet full of gold. And then you scoop up a bit of horse manure and put it on top. How much has that horse manure added to that gold? Well, there's been an addition. Has it added to the value? No. Has it taken away from the beauty? Oh, yes. Has it, has it offended your noses? I think it would. But it's a stench unto God because that is the adding of our works to Christ's work. Not only does it cover his work, yeah, not only does it bring no glory that should be in his work, it is a stench to God. And the only thing that we can bring is, is sin. 
The only thing we bring into the gospel equation is sin. And therefore we need Jesus to take away that sin, take away the guilt for that sin, take away the wrath for that sin. And so we lay hold on Christ, we, we cease from our work. But Christ also ceased from his work of redemption, of, of fulfilling everything that needed to be fulfilled, of doing everything that needs to be fulfilled. As, as God ceased from his work of creation, entering into his rest, so we see Christ entering into his rest, that God entered into his rest, that we are to enter into his rest and rest in the finished work of Christ. No longer working against him, no longer working without him, but resting in him, which is why Christ calls all sinners to come unto him, to get that rest. Matthew 11, 28 and 29. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You know where does he say you, you'll find rest if you do this and do that and do the other? He doesn't send you back to yourself. He says, come unto me. Take my yoke upon you. Bind yourself to me. It's a double yoke. You, know, you have the two oxen together, bound together. Bind yourself to me. Learn of me. So be teachable. For I am meek and holy in heart. And you shall find rest unto your souls. That's the only rest that the people of God can know is resting in Jesus. Resting in that promise, let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left, left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. Don't presume, as many in old Israel did. Attended the means of grace. Maybe they were, uh, maybe as the males, they were, they were circumcised, of course. And, and all these other matters, they, they partook in this, and yet there was no true saving faith. And they would not enter into his rest. The earthly rest, the eternal rest, the Sabbath rest, the gospel rest. Fifthly, the grace-given rest in verse 11. Verse 11 says this, Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. Sort of circles in with verse 1 there. Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. You know, from all that we've just examined and everything that we've just said, it almost seems contradictory to say, let us labor, therefore, to enter into the rest. So, no, we're to enter into the rest, but we're to work hard to get there. But that word labor does not mean work. It is not, let us work, therefore, to enter into that rest. It is the word that means, let us be diligent. Let us put in the effort. Let us be zealous. In fact, that word is often translated as being zealous, being studious. Study to show thyself approved unto God is the same word, study. And that word study means to be zealous. To be zealous to enter into that rest. And that... that now the confusion is clear. It's how, it's how the Lord says you are to be zealous. Well, Paul says that you are to be zealous, you, you are to be intensive, you are to be focused upon entering into that rest, 
were to endeavor to rest in the grace of Christ, were to endeavor to live in the grace of Christ. And so we are to avoid anything that would prevent that. Therefore, we are actively to endeavor to avoid legalistic attitudes. Because there's no resting in Christ. There's certainly no glory to Christ in legalism. Thinking that our keeping of the commandments will somehow earn God's love and affection, and it's in our hearts. Because connected with idolatry is legalism. If I do this and I do that, then God will love me. It's the basis of all idolatry. That I have to do these rites and rituals. I have to give this money and give these gifts. I have to do this. I have to give up my firstborn. I have to, uh, whatever it might be, I have to do all these things just to find favor with these demonic gods. But the true and living God is not like that. You cannot think keeping the commandments will earn God's love and affection because Jesus' blood has earned that love and affection. Or we can be afraid that our failings will cause God to love us less. You see, that's the sort of the other side of the same coin of legalism. I've got to do this that God will love me, and yet I've failed to do this so he won't love me. And that causes us to think wrong things about God, to think that God is as harsh and judgmental as we can be, and he isn't. On the contrary, in the gospel and in Jesus Christ, brethren and sisters, we can rest in God as our Father. He has adopted us for Christ's sake. And we can rest in Christ as our Savior because his blood sprinkled on us speaks better things than that of Abel's. His blood speaks of reconciliation. It speaks of peace. It speaks of cleansing. It speaks of ownership, that we are his and he is ours. And we can rest in the Holy Ghost who indwells us, who comforts us, who regenerated us at the very beginning of faith. And he will never leave us. It's not just a, for a time to give us a nice feeling because that would not be the work of the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost in his indwelling work can convict the, the, the Christian. He does convict the Christian. And it's good when he convicts the Christian. It makes you, uh, shakes up your self-righteousness. Hey, remember that sin that you've been living with and you've done nothing about. And he convicts you. and You don't like it. Of course you don't like it. But the Holy Ghost loves you so much that he's prepared to work against your fleshly nature to make you more and more like Jesus. That's the whole point of it. The whole point of salvation is to pull us out of the miry clay, to wash us down and to renew us in the image of Christ. You see, the Lord knows our imperfections. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our failings. He knows our hypocrisies. He knows everything about us anyway. And yet he says, in Jesus, I love you. My son has done all the work. And he has done it perfectly. Do you have my son? Then you have my love my eternal love, my eternal affection. They have my fatherhood. You have my kingdom. You have my son. You have my spirit. And for nothing done in you, does he de desire us to grow more and more in the image of Christ? Yes. 
Does he want us to grow more and more in obedience, that we'd be more humble towards him, that we'd suppress the rebellious flesh and, 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 and encourage the, the, the humble born-again you? Yes. And he is working these things out because he loves us. But we must learn to rest in God's grace. We need to rest in God's love. His, his love is unconditional. His grace is unconditional. And his love is warm and it is affectionate and it is an everlasting love. And there is nothing you can do, believer, to diminish that love. The Lord will maybe chastise you when you are stubborn in your sin, but the love is not removed. The chastisement comes so that you will experience the love once again. Paul writes in Romans 8 and verse 38 to 39 about the love of God in Jesus Christ. He says, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ our Lord. Nothing, nothing, including your, my failings, including your and my sin. So let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, even today. Let us endeavor to live in the rest and live in the grace of Christ. Which brings us to our final point of the table. The resting in Christ at the table, which was the title uh, of this Lord's Table address. The resting in Christ at the table. If you have obeyed the command of the gospel, if you have believed the promise of God, to use the language of Hebrews 3 and verse 4, if you have believed on Christ, then, you've, then that is the evidence that you have received a gift from God, the faith itself, the ability to believe. And that faith unites you to Christ. And being united to Christ, what does that make you? Well, in regards to Christ, one of the redeemed, but it makes you something that we know as a common word in the New Testament, it makes you a disciple. He is your teacher, he is your rabbi, he is your master, all those words referring to, to teaching. And you are the taught. You are being taught. That's what disciple means. Disciple means that you are teachable and you are being taught. We may use the word student these days or the word pupil, but they all point to the same thing of what disciple means. To learn. A learner. Not just a follower, but a, a learner, to be learned from Christ. Because Christ is a teacher, and he wants his people to be taught. So you've become a disciple of Christ. And this teacher, he loves you, and he desires that you would love him. And there is a desire to love him, although it would be much weaker, of course. And you have the privilege of fellowshipping with him as a true believer every single day of your life. And this evening you have the privilege of fellowshipping with the Lord at his table. So as you can come and commune with Christ, taking what we've learned already, especially the previous point, learn to rest entirely upon his love.
Learn to rest upon his grace. It's, it's no longer me having to do this, that, and the other, lest I lose the love of God. No, it's just now resting in Christ. Be like John the disciple. That was a real disciple. Very teachable. Of whom it was said, in John 13 and verse 23, now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. And so as you take the elements of the bread and the cup, lean on Jesus' bosom. Obviously it's in prayer, it's in devotional uh, intimacy with the Lord where you're sitting, but it is a leaning on him, knowing that he loves you, knowing that he has done everything that is needed for you, that you would enter into his rest. So lean on him at the table. Lean on him every moment of every day. Lean on him in the difficult moments. Lean on him and rest with him in the delights of life. He can take your weight. He can take your problems. And he loves the fellowship and the intimacy. He delights in that closeness with you. So come unto Christ. Rest against his bosom. Feast upon him for your soul's needs because he has everything that you need. He has prepared it all. But learn every day to rest in the f completed work of Jesus Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Stop condemning yourself. As Paul said, that he does not even judge himself, not that he doesn't examine himself, but he doesn't condemn himself and criticize himself for every single failing because if anyone knew it was Paul, that God's grace was sufficient for him. May God bless that truth to you and change uh, you and your walk with him to the glory of his name. Amen. I'll ask the Reverend Fitton and Mr. Near me to come to the table, please.